2: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Mornings Without Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner. Paul Perot. I think we are officially sanctioned by the regular host to call this Mornings she, Without she Carmen. It. She was the one yeah. who suggested that name. So we acknowledge that uh, this show is the show, Mornings with Carmen, but today it is Mornings Without Carmen. Carmen taking a, a nice break for the morning. And again, I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for this 6th of November. And uh, boy... If you're like me at all, uh, waking up to some of the headlines of the day, there's just really no sugarcoating some of these things, that there is difficulty happening in our world. And and as much as I would like to wish it away and as much as I might like to shoo it away, uh, it it simply is there to wake up again to see record-breaking statistics on the uh, infectiousness of the coronavirus, some 118,000 people. Testing positive in the United States yesterday, setting a record in terms of volume of cases that have been recognized. And of course, we had the election this week, as which I'm sure all of you are familiar with, and a uh, press conference held. There was an out, election uh, this week? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if you missed it this week, Paul, but it oh, was, it was oh, a pretty substantial dang. event in our country, indeed. You know, and with the president coming out yesterday, and as the votes continue to be counted, and him saying, uh, setting down the foundation for what will undoubtedly be some sort of legal protest and, and uh, contesting of. The election and now some of the prominent and, and visible senators are beginning to line up behind the president as well. And the Republican side was Senator Ted Cruz yesterday, uh, crying foul in the Philadelphia as part of this election. And and Senator Lindsey Graham, another prominent figure within the party, donated five hundred thousand dollars to the legal fund. And you can sort of feel the, the pressure building. The pressure cooker is, is is certainly turned on. We don't know how this is gonna resolve, but it doesn't appear As if it's going to be resolved anytime soon. And so what's crossing my mind and spirit this morning in the midst of all of that was once again this famous passage from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33, that we as believers uh, gathering together this morning on this show can can take heart with. And it's exactly what Jesus said. So I'll read that from a a few different translations as we get started this morning. Jesus and uh, again... The 16th chapter, verse 33, says this, that I have told you these things, difficult things that are going to come so that in me, you may have peace, not in the circumstances where you have peace, but in me, you will have peace in this world. You will have trouble, but take heart, heart. I have overcome the world. Another translation says these things I've spoken to you so that in me, you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. And then my favorite uh, version of this is the old school King James Bible that says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And Paul, I was thinking about how are you possibly filled with good cheer? in the midst of this, in a way that is authentic and real. I know no other way that when Jesus says he's overcome the world, it means that the power of sin and death has been beaten. Uh, And and the worst that this world will throw at all of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, is, is the power of sin and death. And in those events on the beautiful hill of Calvary, as difficult as that Good Friday was... It set the stage for Easter Sunday where Jesus Mm -hmm. burst out of the tomb and sin and death was beaten. And that's what Jesus means, that we can actually be of authentic good cheer. We will have tribulation. We don't get out of it. But we will, in the midst of that, we can have a cheer because we know the end of the story.
0: We know the end of the story and we know the kingdom. We know what's coming. Our
2: anchor is there absolutely, and that, that's the prophetic voice of the church in the culture that we have good news. this is the heart of the gospel and the good news and in our different conversations this morning, that is what we will rally around. We will certainly cover many of the headlines of the day, including first regular contributor Matthew Hawkins will join us, and we 're going to talk about what it means to have conversations across different political and, and ethnic lines. so stay with us here on mornings without Carmen. Just about 10 minutes after the top of the hour here on the 6th of November. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for the morning with Carmen, uh, for Carmen. And we've got Matthew Hawkins here. I know he's a regular Friday contributor to the show, public theologian, comments on the different issues of the day. Good morning, Matthew.
3: Good morning, Peter. Glad to be back, yeah. as always. Great to have you
2: with us. You know, I let off the the opener here with uh, John sixteen thirty three. That really is the heart of it yeah. and hope of our faith, is it not? The idea that that tomb is yeah. empty. And, and so he has overcome the world.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um and we 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 have trouble living that out sometimes mm. uh, particularly a week like this. Uh, in American history. Uh, we can let anxiety uh, kind of take over and uh, um, and that can be really powered back. I, I think uh, we need to encourage one another like like you did just a few minutes ago to uh, reflect and dwell on those scriptures um, uh, as much as possible uh, during times like this. Um, and then from time to time, you know, reflect a little bit on on American history. Um, in 2000, it, it was December 12 before we learned who the new president was. Uh, so there is some precedence for waiting so Indeed. we can wait Indeed. Yeah, a little longer be. for this thing to be done right
2: yeah certain, certainly a lot as we're following that uh, in terms of what we see in front of us another scripture passage that comes to mind Matthew is we fix our eyes not what is unseen unse- but what is uh, unseen mm-hmm. since what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal and to your point these things as difficult as they are they ultimately do not determine the final outcome of this world or anything in it as hard as it is to be in the midst of it it, it still is temporary at the end of the day
3: yeah Yep. Agreed.
2: Well, let's get into some of the headlines of the day. I know that uh, you and I were reading about uh, what is described as an immersive experience <laughs> among young people in, in which yeah. they are sort of taught how to have interactions and conversations across different device, uh, dividing lines. So tell us a little bit more about what's happening here and what we're learning.
3: Yeah. So there's a collaboration between Oberlin University and, uh, in Ohio, I believe, and then um, Spring Arbor University in Michigan. And uh, what these two colleges are doing are trying to teach undergraduate students uh, how to communicate with one another across deep differences. And the the new project titled, if you were to enroll in it, uh, is called Bridging the Gap, Colon, Dialogue Across Campus in a Time of Political Polarization. Mm. And uh, this is a project uh, related uh, to some of the work I've been doing recently with um, uh, listeners will be familiar with the Matthew 5, 9 project. Uh, it's the breaths that are the peacemakers verse. Um, and uh, it's an initiative of pastors uh, collaborating together uh, to provide each other with some resources and encouragement to help their own churches address uh, issues of polarization. Uh, this polarization thing is new for a lot of us. Uh polarization at some level is good for us because if we were all thinking the same, that would be quite boring. And, uh, so, you know, we have different, we different have different sports teams and we have different political views and, uh, that keeps us, um, it keeps things interesting and, and keeps us uh, uh, You know not one idea uh, dominating the public sphere um, But toxic polarization is a trend line that we've been seeing for a, a little while now and it's when those uh, Those there's more natural connections. They're kind of um, Kind of the connective tissue in between citizens and neighbors when that starts to fray uh, we get into this trend line called toxic polarization, and uh, it can be really problematic. Uh, research from places that have gone through conflicts, uh, and so there's a field called conflict resolution, and there's a field called uh, basically uh, violence prevention, conflict violence prevention. Uh, they're trying to give us the tools um, from from an academic discipline uh, and, a re- and some research to help faith leaders, um, encourage their pastors and kind of, uh, or encourage their congregations to uh, resist these polarization trend lines. And this project at at Oberlin seems pretty interesting uh, because you have people who not only uh, are engaging in places like, uh, they go, looks like there's a uh, they got to involve uh, meetings with police unions and incarcerated individuals and corrections officers and state legislatures. So they're learning all about the criminal justice space. Um, and But in doing so, they're given tools so that not only they're not just reacting to things that they see that they disagree with, but they're actually engaging in conversation in a more constructive Way, um, and that's a really that's a really necessary tool. I think that uh, we we've kind of lost, uh, and we were we're facing some unprecedented challenges. What uh, do you see this kind of polarization um, uh, with with students in, in your environment?
2: You know, I do, Matthew, and, and I would say yeah. that it, it can take a real subtle form, right, where it's not even so much um, that people are really angry with each other. It's the inability to engage without feeling like if you do engage, that you're going to be somehow mentally, emotionally um, or psychologically harmed by sort of other ideas. Right. And so I think we've lost that uh, capacity, at least among some of the younger people, to really engage. And, and you and I were talking before the show that this phrase intellectual humility um, it, yeah. So many people really want to be able to say, we've got to come together. we got to come together. And, and after a while, that just feels like a platitude and we don't know how to do it. But a very practical yeah. thing that anybody can do is engage in this idea of intellectual humility. And this is where I invite my students and myself included to say, hey, look, anytime you're looking at any issue... It's pretty likely you don't understand the fullness of that issue in, in its entirety, and so to have the humility to say, "I know I have gaps, I don't even know where the gaps are," that kind of foundation begins to to you know bridge those gaps, right
3: right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Intellectual humility is a big thing, and uh, I'm, I've been teaching a world religions class, um, and this semester, and trying to get the students to understand how, uh, in an academic context, we're talking about uh, different religions from across the world. Uh, and there's a challenge for both Christians and non-Christians to say, "Look, um, we're trying to we're holding ideas in our mind as possible, while not embracing them as as believing in them." Uh, and I think we need to uh, uh, help uh, not only students, but our, our fellow church members remind, remind ourselves that, that that's an okay thing to do. Um, we, it's, it's an expression of empathy, really we um, 're affirming the human dignity of other people when we take their beliefs seriously and uh, it's one thing to come to a conviction about something whether it 's in the church or outside the church or politics um, it 's a different project entirely to win people over to your cause um, in, a, in a winsome manner um, and that's uh, and or even if you 're not going to win them over uh, sometimes that's 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 part of our problem too is we only want to engage if it was someone uh, in, in an evangelistic sense uh, even in politics like we, we we, we're trying to win people over to our cause and if not, that's that so we kind of see people as an uh, a means to an end uh, for our for our own project. Um, and we need to find balance on all that um, and uh, for the sake of our nation, we need to uh, kind of equip ourselves um, students and church members alike um, to think to think better about uh, folks and uh, to be fair, look uh, we're in some unprecedented times and our disagreements are kind of unprecedented, and uh, we need we need some skill sets and uh, there there are ways to bridge some gaps um, that are that are better. <laughs> strategies, um, then some, sometimes we might think, um, so uh, some of the polarization, anti-polarization work we do, um, with a group called the one America movement, uh, gets people together um, from across religious divides, from across political divides, and uh, does a hands-on project in their community um, Whether that's dealing with opioids crisis or uh, hurricane recovery or um, uh, there's a project in Charlottesville on, on racism. Um, there are ways to go about uh, getting into conversations, but sometimes it helps to just get your hands dirty uh, and roll up your sleeve and work on a shared project that is important to your community locally. Um, and then start talking about where you disagree. And even in that, uh, there are methods, um, helpful methods to uh, to work through getting to talking about the disagreements. We don't start out in a conversation and say, hey, we disagree about this. Let's talk. <laughs> uh, there's some, some more nuanced strategies to get to know each other first and then work your way into that um, that are pretty helpful. So I'm glad to see this kind of program uh, develop at, at Oberlin and uh, Spring Arbor.
2: Yeah, that's the voice of Matthew Hawkins. Matthew, let's stay with this conversation a little bit when we come back in a moment and uh, even talk about the difference between understanding what are those things in our lives that we can write in pencil and sometimes dark pencil that are subject to being erased and changed, and what are those things that we just need to keep in that dark pen, and then how do we bridge the gap in the midst of that? So more to come here on Mornings with Carmen with Matthew Hawkins. Enjoying our conversation with Matthew Hawkins this morning. We're talking about uh, what it means to begin to bridge some of the divides. I know, again, there's all these plaudits and platitudes that we've got to come together, but so often we don't go steps beyond that to wonder what that can look like. And so, Matthew, we've been exploring you and me this morning. The idea of intellectual humility or intellectual honesty would be another way to say it. And uh, it really, to, to bridge that gap so often starts not with trying to say, well, when the other person figures it out. And when the other person's got it together, and when the other person sees things my way, then we can bridge that gap. That That is not necessarily a strategy that we can bridge gaps with. Instead, if we all begin to look inside and say – hey, look, there are certain things that are written in pen in my life. And and I know for people like you and me and many of our listeners, what's written in pen is that Jesus died and Jesus raised and the power of sin and death has been beaten. Um, And uh, we we do serve a risen Savior that has overcome the world. My life, my faith, everything about all of that collapses if that's not written in permanent marker, in in Sharpie as it were. But then to, to recognize there's so many things about our relationships, about our beliefs, about however fervently we might believe them that really need to be written somewhere uh, in a different shade of pencil, sometimes light, sometimes dark. And last piece of that, I love what was uh, said of C.S. Lewis, Lewis, that the reason why he was so effective and so wise is because he had the intellectual honesty to let the evidence take him wherever he it would lead, because he simply wanted to uh, live within the freedom of that which was true. And, and so that skill set, I would say, Matthew, that the starting point of bridging divides and coming together in this is maybe looking inward and saying, hey, I don't necessarily know everything about everything. Here are my things in pen that, I, that I can't change, but most, a lot of this other stuff is written in pencil.
3: Yeah, I, I agree entirely. And, uh, we, we, we've done really good job. I think, um, uh, not the least of which, you know, is a contribution to uh, intellectual, what I call an intellectual lineage from uh, folks like C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer and Chuck Colson. Um, we've done a really good job of coming to convictions about things. And uh, but it, like I said before, it's a little different thing to try to um, to engage with someone uh, uh, and and kind of take their beliefs seriously and respect them, uh, even though they hold different beliefs, while at the same time you know, what's the, uh, the phrase from the Reformation, uh, always reforming, mm. right? So we're always, we're always trying to reform back to scripture. And sometimes we've picked up, um, uh, convictions and beliefs along the way that are more rooted in, in, uh, in human tradition than they are scripture, really. Uh, and we need not be afraid uh, to discover those. And so uh, we, we, when we're, as a person who's a theological conservative, I say, um, we're looking to conserve, what are we conserving? Or what are we trying to conserve? Um, we're trying to conserve God's word uh, as it's been revealed to us. Uh, and sometimes that means correcting our own uh, imprecision. Uh, on things that maybe we 've gleaned um, from church growing up, uh maybe something that was more of a, a something from an american subculture understanding of something uh, and maybe there 's something that uh, the Holy Spirit um, and through uh, better uh, better tools of interpretation from scripture uh, can lead us to a um, a more clear uh, belief, or you know, uh, we might still hold a conviction, but recognize we kind of hold it lightly. Um, that there are spaces where uh, Christians, in particular, um, can, in goodwill, disagree. Right. This is why we have different local churches. Uh, that's why we as Protestants uh, don't uh, don't uh, participate in the Catholic church tradition, um, we're, we're okay having different churches that believe different things. And even within a church, uh, you know, there's certain things that, uh, believes are required for membership in the church. Um, but even then a lot, of, a lot of, uh, folks disagree, uh, and that's okay. I think we need to extend each other some grace and uh, recognize where those things are and where we can have differences. Um, and then I think we, you know, if you want, if you don't mind pivoting a little bit, um, Trying to figure out what we, how how we engage people of different religious faiths. Yeah. Um, we're living in a culture that's ever ever more um, uh, diverse um, with respect to religion, uh, and uh, we need to equip one another with the tools to do that. And uh, you know, a couple themes that I see for say we meet a Christian uh, like you or me, um, and who are like, you know what, I get this. I feel like I don't know. Uh, I, I feel like we should. Like we're, we feel like we should be able to engage um, people of different religious faiths better, um, but I don't know how. Right? Yeah. Um, they they're, they've captured the vision maybe, but they don't know how. Um, and a couple of things that I have found helpful is like we got to give folks the scriptural resources um, to to understand that this is possible from in a theological conservative framework um, that we're not that we're just not floating detached from scripture. Uh, but love your neighbor, uh, and certainly one another. Uh, commandments are pretty clear, uh, and there and there are others. I think uh, we have models. Um, you know, Paul Paul um, at Athens uh, engaging people who definitely do not believe what he believes, um, and uh, further, we have models in Paul. Uh, he's delivering the same message uh, through his letter to the Romans um, and whether it's Paul or a different author uh, t- to the Hebrews, right? So we have the same message but it's packaged differently yeah. uh, in the lingo we use. Uh, there are reasons we have the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews. Um, same basic message uh, delivered to uh, people who uh, uh, think thinking differently and using some different language. Uh, so we have some models there. Uh, and if we believe, there's a confidence too. Uh, if we believe our faith is ultimately true and that the Holy Spirit has done a work in us, then we need not fear uh, us being captured necessarily with uh, worldly ideals or, or other religions um, that may conflict with that. Right. There's, so there's a trust and resting in Holy, in the Holy Spirit too, that I think can be applied. Um, And then a little more practically, I think uh, people just need some more tools. Um, How uh, uh, can they engage with people of another faith that while, while not participating Right. Another religion's worship. Right. Uh, I think that's that's sometimes um, there are kind of there are two other um, themes of, quote unquote, uh, interfaith or multi-faith work. Interfaith work tends to be among uh, progressive uh, people who are more progressive um, from across religions. That's easier to pull off in the short term. I don't think it's as fruitful in the long term. And you don't really get any theological conservatives, and you certainly don't get political conservatives into that into that world. And a lot of that activity sometimes looks like uh, universalism or trying to uh, compare... Where our religious practices are the same, uh, and have f- shared worship services, and a lot of us feel uncomfortable with that, and and it's the kind of a no go. Um, the other model, the other bad model of multi faith uh, interaction, is the secularized model, where we can only talk about things that are supposedly secular uh, with our uh, religious other counterparts. So uh, if we come into the, the the supposed dialogue table, that's. Uh, uh, Jewish Jews and Muslims, we can't talk about anything religious. Um, it's The better model is the multi-faith model, where we affirm everybody as their religious selves and still engage one another in conversation mm. uh, for the sake of uh, collaborating in our community.
2: Yeah, I know. Those are great words and great advice, uh, Matthew. I really appreciate the input on, on this about how we can cross these lines. Uh, keep doing the work you're doing and look forward to the next time we have a chance to chat.
3: Thank you, brother. Have a great weekend.
2: Yeah, you too. We'll take a short break here and uh, come back for the second half of this first hour when we chat with Dan DeWitt, and we're going to address the conversation around what it means to nationally, uh, nationally repent, the importance of that, but maybe some of the shortcomings of that. So stay with us. There's more to come here on Mornings Without Carmen. So I see the headline this morning that anxiety over the presidential election is leading to more cases of nervous exhaustion. Not a surprise there. Neuroscientist Judd Brewer specializes in anxiety and addiction said that uncertainty releases stress chemicals in our bodies and we can end up amplifying that if we are scrolling through social media throughout the day. So to reverse the effects, he says, Dr. Brewer said, take a break from your phone, breathe deeply, pet a dog or a cat exercise, focus on a different difficult task. I know for me, Paul Perot, we've got got two kittens that are new arrivals in our home and sitting with them and, and playing with them uh, last night for the better part of a half an hour. is like the world just melted away yeah, temporarily, right? At that. the end of the Puppies day. Puppies even more so. Puppies really do that. I will though say we have some adult cats in our house and let's just say that the adult cats are not as happy and maybe they're feeling a little stressed about these little kittens. So wherever we go, we got to navigate these relationships, right? Well, that's right? because you elected to pay attention to the kittens and <laughs> them. <laughs> it's really true. The cats are insecure just like me. We'll have a great conversation coming up here with Dan DeWitt up next. And we're going to talk a little bit about national repentance, both the upsides and the downsides of that, as well as the legacy of Aslan the Lion from Narnia, who has turned 70 years old. Well, Paul, I know we're waiting for uh, Dan Dewitt. He is on the way, running yeah, up the stairs he's running as up the we stairs speak. Right now, Our to next his office, guest. he's yeah. trying to get
0: his Skype on, and he, he, he's he's coming. he's we, coming. We
2: will get it started up, but in the meantime, I'm looking forward to some of these conversations. I don't know what kind of impact uh, the world of Narnia had that C.S. Lewis created on you. I know just the, these beautiful stories that are not necessarily allegories of our faith, but represent uh, some of the, the key stories of our faith. No, they're like allegories. The, they, <laughs> well, the, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> uh, the, the creation story in The Magician's Nephew is so beautiful. As, as, is. I mean, as Aslan sings creation into being, mm-hmm. it's one of the most stunning moments of any book that I've read. It kind of takes you back into the Genesis one time, or of course, we've got the very famous Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yep. and. And, and Aslan is the central creature. He's the son of the Emperor over the sea, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and he makes his appearances in this world. And when he does, uh, beautiful things happen. And one of my favorite uh, stories about Aslan is when the, the children of Narnia, Peter and Lucy and Edmund and Susan, and when, they, when they first go through the wardrobe and they appear at the lamppost and they meet the Beaver family. And mm-hmm. they're kind of getting oriented to this world of Narnia that is currently in the deep freeze of the White Witch. and. And uh, they, they, they hear about this Aslan creature, and, and the Beaver family say that he's a lion, and there is, they're kind of taken aback by this idea. And they say, a lion? Uh, is he safe? Not safe? Of course he's not safe. Right. But but, he's good. uh, It's one of my favorite lines. Well, like our our, uh, C.S. Lewis's conception of who God is in our world. uh, If you decide to say yes to following Jesus in this world, you're you're not likely signing up for a life of safety, right? No. There is going to be difficult. And of course, Jesus will take you on a wild ride through this world and through the trouble and the tribulation and the good and the joy and the blessing and the sorrow and all of those sorts of things. And in all of those categories, he's always good. That he he will always uh, take us through as we stay uh, tethered to him in this life, and that's what the Beaver family really was uh, was interested in, in in conveying to to these young children as they were just getting to know about their faith, and boy. Do we need that message for today to yeah, stay tethered uh, to him? So do we have Dan on the line yet at this point? Well,
0: hopefully we'll get him here in a few moments. So uh, sure. if you want, we can just while do we parenting today's teen and hopefully he'll be there. Why don't we time. take
2: a short break for parenting today's team? We come back. Otherwise, you and I can keep chatting about Narnie and also even talk about some of the dangers of national repentance. There's a lot there to dig into. So stay with us. More to come here in just a moment.
0: If there's tension at home. You know what it's like to carry that stress with you throughout the day. A strained relationship with your teen affects all areas of your life. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If you're carrying a heavy burden for your family right now, plan some time to focus on your own health. Battle-worn moms may think, I can't focus on myself when a kid needs so much help, it seems selfish. That's bogus. We need to change our mindset if we want to grow strong families. Strong, mature teens come from healthy homes. Take care of yourself by focusing on your marriage, finding a support group of like-minded people, and getting plenty of rest. By taking care of yourself, you're taking care of your teen. Want to bring Mark to your church or community? Find out how to
1: request an event in your area when you visit parentingtodaysteens.org.
0: Thank you for listening to Faith Radio, where you can find relevant Bible preaching and family-focused teaching to help you grow in your faith. Our mission is to lead people to Christ and nurture believers in their faith through Christ-centered media. Find out more about your favorite programs and features and find helpful articles on relevant topics such as marriage and family, finances, health and wellness, and spiritual growth, all at MyFaithRadio.com.
2: Well, we have indeed successfully located pastor and apologetics uh, professor Dan DeWitt. Uh, Good morning, Dan. Good
1: to have you here. It is so great to be on the show. Thank you guys for being patient. I have not had my caffeine, caffeine quota yet this morning. Uh-oh. Oh, all things oh, are forgiven in that <laughs> case. Yes,
2: thanks for revealing because <laughs> all things are forgiven and totally understood. Hey, we were just chatting a little bit about uh, Aslan the Lion from the Chronicles of Narnia turning 70 years old, and uh, Paul and I were reflecting on some of the beautiful stories and the allegories of our faith. Uh, let me just start this way, and I'd love your, your reaction to it. It's a letter that C.S. Lewis wrote um, to his—I uh, believe it was his granddaughter— Uh, or his daughter, Lucy, I'm sorry, about these stories. He writes this. My dear Lucy, I wrote this story for you, but when I began it, I had not realized that girls grow quicker than books. As a result, you are already too old for fairy tales, and by the time it is printed and bound, you will be older still. But this is what really caught me off guard, Dan, and I'd love for you to respond to this. But someday you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. You can then take it down from some upper shelf, dust it off, and tell me what you think of it. I will probably be too deaf to hear and too old to understand a word you say, but I shall still be your affectionate... Godfather And Dan, just I love that idea that, you know, we we sort of forget, right? We forget the wonder and beauty and possibility and power in the story and all of those things in which we live as life begins to kind of grind upon us. But someday we become old enough to go back to the beautiful stories of which we're a part.
1: Yeah, Lewis, you know, and I love that, too, that it's such a touching um, dedication to his goddaughter and um, one of his best friends, Owen Barfield. Owen and his wife adopted Lucy when she was about two years old and Lewis became her her godfather and um he Lewis picks up that idea like a lot of things um Lewis will often give us this really poetic version of an idea and then also later write about it in really clear prose in an essay and Lewis in a in an essay called talking about bicycles um and who else but Lewis could take you know something as mundane as riding a bike and make it into this really profound insight into the human experience. But Lewis said, you know, when you can't ride a bike, a bike's kind of irrelevant to you. And then you, when you first learn to to ride a bike, it's magical. You know, you're just gliding along. It's almost like flight. But over time a bike becomes just a means to an end. I have, you know, I used to have a paper route. I would get on my bike and do my paper route and it was just a um, something I needed. And so we grow disenfranchised to the bike and even move on to an automobile, you know, something better. But at some point, Lewis said, as an adult, if we'll get back on a bicycle, we'll be re-enchanted. And Lewis felt like it was the power of story that could take people who had grown disenchanted to reality and the Christian truth. And it was story that could lead them back to re-enchantment.
2: Yeah, I love that phrase reenchantment, Dan, and I think that's so important to to keep that as as part of sort of the 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 mystery of our faith. I know at one point I was uh, teaching a third grade classroom right out of college and it was a literature section that we were doing and I, and I chose the line the witch in the wardrobe and it was so interesting to watch these 8, 9 and 10 year olds that Uh, some of whom could barely speak English at all. And as we read through the story, you could Mm -hmm. even feel their little hearts coming to life and intrigue. And and we never used the word Jesus in the classroom, of course, uh, of of a public school. But in reading the stories, they knew that there was something bigger. And so I I would love your take. Just we do need to teach the scriptures. I am such a huge proponent uh, of the authority and uh, the inspiration of scriptures. But sometimes to, to teach alongside of scriptures, the stories in a different kind of way, it's almost like a parable in terms of when Jesus was saying the kingdom is like... And then he would tell a short story about it. It captures us in a different way.
1: That's absolutely right. You know, and to and to go back to the life of Jesus, how often you know Jesus was using these the powerful imagery, these um, everyday experiences and things that were right in front of him and his audience, and then also these stories that you know are so provocative and powerful and they challenge our assumptions, and those are the kind of results, um, consequences from that kind of teaching style and the power of that methodology that just sitting down saying, I want to teach you something doesn't always have the same effect. And so Lewis called you know, our, our ready-made rational responses to certain arguments, um, watchful dragons. And so it's through story Lewis felt that he could get around the watchful dragons and get you to maybe stop and think, Um, Maybe I've left something behind that's really powerful and true, but the story is what jogs your memory and kind of wakes you up.
2: Yeah, I I just can't uh, recommend reading through these uh, more highly. Again, you see the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and and Aslan helping to break the spell of the White Witch. And everywhere he goes, life is coming. Things are being set right. It's such a beautiful picture of the incarnation of Jesus as wherever he went, things were being set right. Or you have the Voyage of the Dawn Treader where they go to the ends of the earth and we see Aslan's Country for Real where the true story begins like, like they talk about in The Last Battle. It's such a great series of books. So we celebrate the 70th birthday of Aslan, the Lion, this morning. Dan, when we come back in just a moment, I would love to pivot the conversation to some things that you wrote that captured my attention about the idea that maybe national repentance, for as good as it is, does have some downsides. So you've got 90 seconds to go grab your coffee, and we'll be back here in just a minute on Mornings Without Carmen. Welcome back. We got Dan DeWitt on the line here this morning. And, Dan, my understanding is is that you have a steaming hot uh, brew of coffee right now. But, you know, pretty high-grade coffee. You don't mess around, do you?
1: No. And, you know, from the culturally elite state of Kentucky, (laughs) um, (laughs) I have it piped right in. And, yeah, it's good stuff from good folks coffee. Everybody should go out and buy some good folks coffee right now online. Uh, <laughs> thanks for the
2: spot, Dan. We appreciate that. I love it. Well, I know you wrote uh, in, in a time where I think a lot of people are perhaps understandably saying that our country is going the direction that it's going however you want to to understand that or or the rancor and division, the strife and the turmoil that we have is a, re- a, a direct result from walking away from God. And what we need is national repentance. And And I think we can fairly say that that is a good thing. But but you point out some, some parts of that. Maybe, maybe we need to think about as we engage in this kind conversation And in this phrase, national
3: repentance.
1: Yeah, so I, at Cedarville, I teach a class on C.S. Lewis, and it's such a joy because I have students—most of the class is made up of students reading Lewis and then presenting, and I have such amazing students that I'm always learning from them. Mm-hmm. And one one thing I have them do is go into Lewis's literary corpus, you know, and and take out one of his many essays and present on it, and I had a student ask me if they could present on the dangers of national repentance— And it's one of those essays I had not read in a long time, and so I went back and read it. They're presenting on it um, next week, so no pressure for them. (laughs) But I went back and read it and thought, you know, this is so powerful for our current moment. What Lewis gets at is that, of course, we can repent as a nation. We have biblical examples of that. Of course, Israel was called to repentance. Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will serve. Um, So there can be these pivotal moments. But often what happens, Lewis said, is that the charm of national repentance gives us cover from personal repentance and so that we kind of celebrate how we are sympathetic with the crimes of the nation what we really mean is my neighbor's guilty of sin and i'm not and so i can kind of get credit for publicly saying um i want to repent as a part of the nation when really what i'm saying is look at all these sinful people who preceded me and it could give us real the real danger of not considering our own sins
2: yeah, I think that's such an important point, Dan. And we were talking earlier in the show about the idea of how do we begin to come back together as a nation or just relationships that are split, split marriages are struggling, There's so much fracture and division. And and I think understandably, again, maybe sometimes our first move is, well, as soon as that person gets it right, as soon as that person gets it straight, we're going to be able to come together a little bit more. But. The, the kingdom seems to be somewhat counterintuitive that so often the beginnings of being able to come back together means that people don't look at the other person. They begin to look inward and say, you know, I probably don't have the the full scope of the situation. I probably, you know, do not have the monopoly on the truth of everything. And so that phrase that is used often to describe of C.S. Lewis, in fact, uh, of intellectual honesty and intellectual humility yeah. really needed if we're going to ever come back together.
1: That's absolutely right. And, of course, Jesus said we have to deal with the moat that's in our eye um, before we could talk to our neighbor about the speck that's in their eye. And it may indeed be that they have a moat in their eye too, but um, what we're responsible for is ourselves first and foremost. And before we kind of brag to the world, you know, on social media um, and say, look, I'm so sorry for sins that I really had no control over. um, We could start and see real change when we begin by saying, here are the sins of my heart. Here are the ways I sin against my neighbor, and let's begin there. Pray for others, but openly confess our own sins as the Lord gives us opportunity and as it's appropriate. That's where real revival comes from.
2: Mm. And the invitation in that, Dan, right, is is not that then you just compromise or sacrifice that, which is true. I think some people are concerned, well, if I'm not pointing it out in the other person, it's never going to get dealt with. And and that's not the invitation here. So often, actually, when somebody demonstrates some measure of authentic humility, it it invites other people to demonstrate that way. And the the cycle of sort of personal violence in which we engage, I don't mean physical violence, but the violence of the spirit that Martin Luther King Jr. talks about, Mm -hmm. that that violence gets broken when somebody says, you know what, I am going to choose to break this cycle. I'm going to love my enemy, quote-unquote. I'm going to bless those who curse me, quote-unquote, by looking Mm. inward first. And then it it somehow sets a different foundation, right?
1: Absolutely. And you know, when one person will do that and be vulnerable and transparent, there's that that powerful domino effect of how the Spirit uses their example to liberate people from the bondage of trying to please others. And they'll realize, if they could do that and be real before God and others. And of course, James says, it's in that kind of confession that we experience spiritual healing. Mm.
2: Dan, I know as a pastor of a church, as somebody who teaches apologetics and is a part of your background and thinking about these uh, weeks and months to come in our nation in terms of the repentance we do need to do, but some of the other topics as well, I think often about the idea that the political machinery is just that. It's a, it's a machine in which we can help bring about good, but but the church really can stand apart from the political machinery and, and act in a different way. What would you suggest in terms of churches saying, hey, independent of whoever is in power in our country, we as churches begin to do X? How would you fill in the, the blank of X if I was to ask you that this morning? Which, yeah, I, am, I, I, which I am, as a matter of fact, <laughs> asking you that this morning.
1: <laughs> That's right. You just did. Right. Um, well, I, I think some people will feel defeated if the election doesn't go one way or another And they may see that as a real limit on the opportunity that Christians have. And we just need to recognize the um, Church—the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so I don't mean that to insinuate like some political party being the gates of hell. That's not what I mean. (laughs) But rather— there, there is always powerful ways that the church is going to minister and bless a culture. And primarily that's God's method. You know, God will use governments. He'll use political leaders, but God's primary method for his kingdom advancing on earth is not the white house. It's not the oval office. It's that old church or new church building, but you get the point that you walk into and it's the people who make up that church. And so you can serve people in your community Um, and you could turn off these kind of um, sound bites that you're sending out into the ether, that doesn't change anything or anyone. It ticks people off. Um, (laughs) But real-life conversations, real-life needs of the people you're going to see in the next five minutes, that's the opportunity God's given you. And so instead of being distracted constantly, it's not that the national or international things don't matter, um, but often real change happens when we pay attention to the people right in front of us. And there's no more important group we could pay attention to than the community of faith to which we belong.
2: Mm, Dan, we have just one minute left uh, quickly on this as we celebrate 70 years of Narnia and thinking about C.S. Lewis back to that again. I know you teach a class. If if you could recommend one book for our listeners to read, Narnia or otherwise, that C.S. Lewis has written, what would you suggest?
1: You know, I always, I always do two with my <laughs> class that I make them read, and I have them read Screwtape Letters and Mere Christianity, mm. because you really get the bookends of Lewis there. Um, but I think now's a great time to read the Screwtape Letters, where Lewis wrestles with what's it feel like to be tempted, and I, I would encourage you to pick that up and let it point you to your need for the power of the gospel daily, every moment in your life.
2: Dan, great stuff as always. Appreciate you coming on. I'm glad you got the, the hot cup of coffee and thanks for kind of walking <laughs> us through a bit of Narnia uh, this morning as well. It's great to hear your voice as always. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. We'll take a short break, come up, wrap up the first hour of the show and preview what's coming up here on Hour 2 on the 6th of November for Mornings Without Carmen. Well, Paul Perot Dan DeWitt left us with a couple of suggestions there in Mere Christianity as well as Screwtape Letters. I can say that uh, to the extent I've engaged with Mere Christianity, it's such an important and helpful book. It is a book you're probably going to just need to sit like a page a day because it's pretty yeah. thick reading, but it's still really great stuff. It, it,
0: it's been years since I've read that one. I probably should yeah, uh, again because it was so good, so formative back, boy, it was in the 80s when I read it. So. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really
2: stood the test of time. And then Screwtape Letters as well. It's a story of a series of letters, uh, fictionally, taken from a... What what C.S. Lewis would consider a senior demon, screw tape, as he's mentoring his nephew Wormwood, the junior temp- tempter, as they're trying to sort of lead this British man astray. It's a pretty fascinating insight mm-hmm. into how we think and how we're deceived.
0: That one I have not read. I've heard. I've heard audio yeah, clips of it. All time, I yeah. think uh, Max McLean who really captures it. He's scary. Good yeah, yeah, when yeah. he does it. But that said, I've only heard bits. I've only heard clips i got to read the full thing.
2: Yeah, I'm going to actually pick that up this week. And I know uh, even when my 16-year-old son picked it up for the first time, he was really moved uh, by the accessibility of the story and how it does shed light into what's going on in the world around us. Well, great first hour of the show here. I know we've got another equally good hour coming up here in hour two, starting with Adam Holtz of PluggedIn.com. Cover some of the different movies and media of the day. So stay with us here on Mornings Without Carmen.